Hi, I'm Maria Ramper, and welcome to this episode of Engineering Reimagined. Transport infrastructure is not just about railways, stations, highways, or terminals. It's the lifeblood of thriving societies, determining how people access opportunities and connect with one another. It can empower communities economically, environmentally, and socially. In the face of unprecedented urban growth, climate challenges, and changing work dynamics, the responsibilities of chief transport planners have never been greater. They hold the keys to unlocking a sustainable, inclusive, and prosperous future for our cities and regions. Joining us in this episode are two experts in the field. Simon Hunter, Chief Transport Planner, Customer Strategy and Technology for Transport for New South Wales, who's involved in delivering the largest transport infrastructure program Australia has ever seen. And Paul Glucina, Chief Transport Planner at Waka Kotahi New Zealand Transport Agency, delivering major projects such as Auckland's Rapid Transit Network. Both bring a wealth of knowledge and experience in crafting innovative transport solutions that address the complex needs of our society. Simon and Paul chat to Alison Heller, Principal Social Value in Oricon's Engagement and Change Advisory Team. Together, they discuss how transport infrastructure can contribute to urban renewal, social equity, economic prosperity and environmental sustainability now and for future generations. Let's hear what they have to say. Hello, Simon and Paul, and welcome to the Engineering Reimagined podcast. So our first question today, as Chief Transport Planners, what is your biggest opportunity to create great public outcomes? To me, the opportunity is around how we can further align between central government, local government and the private sector, because at the end of the day, that's where most of the investment will be coming from. And the more we've got, you know, the public and private pulling in the same direction, the more likely we're going to get outcomes quicker, better for our communities. So the integration really is where the opportunities are. This role is an absolute privilege because we get to work at the front end where we can take the strategic direction of government and turn it into actionable real plans that can then be delivered that lead to those benefits and outcomes for the people of our country or our state or or the area that we're working in. Specifically, we get to do things like plan for a future transport network, managing the intersection of land use plans and transport. We get to plan for the people that are using our systems and our services both today and tomorrow thinking about what's going to happen long-term in the future and trying to prepare for that. And that leads to really tangible things like corridor identification and protection so that you can things cheaper and easier and less disruptive on people's lives in the future if they're delivered. Transport infrastructure is arguably the most transformative urban infrastructure there is in terms of how it impacts on people's lives. Simon, at the moment, New South Wales is delivering the largest transport infrastructure program Australia has ever seen. And that includes very significant investment in public transport, intergenerational um, impact related investment. So what would you say are some of the benefits that have come from that current program being delivered in New South Wales? It has been an incredible construction and infrastructure development boom that point you made right up front this is intergenerational infrastructure it is infrastructure that delivers benefits to the current users 
as well as the future generations. We've built metros and motorways. We've invested in new public transport, freight links, many roads, upgrades, replacement bridges. All of these things deliver a multitude of benefits, whether they're efficient movement of people and goods, freight, whether they are economic growth and development through the investment in our infrastructure and pipeline. One of the benefits that probably isn't spoken about enough is the uplift in the engineering sector and the development capacity and capability. It's important to plan so things get delivered in a way where they talk to each other and you don't create isolated infrastructure or accidental disconnections. But we also see with a massive pipeline like this, cost escalation and a real heating of the market. And it creates that back-end challenge to make sure that the integration of the new infrastructure is seamless. It's been an incredible period. And, and I think um, we've really seen outcomes for, for social equity and inclusion around more services and, and broader reach of our networks. Whole New Zealand at the moment is really focusing on mass rapid transit with projects like Auckland Light Rail getting underway. And that follows a very significant investment in roads across the country. So could you tell us a bit more about that current program and what has led to that shift in focus to more investment in in mass rapid transport? There's, there's probably two parts to this. I mean, at a basic level, part of that change, you know, represents a change in society. We've got more awareness now around the emerging impacts of climate change, the role that our transport network has to contribute to reducing that. We've got cities that are, are growing at a rate now where they're tipping over from trying to get away with what we've done for you know many decades to moving into more modern approaches to moving a lot of people in less space and the opportunities that you get to do that through rapid transit responses. We're starting to see that community's uh, expectations represented in terms of the way we respond as a public sector. And that's really the second part. So for the majority lion's share of transport investment in New Zealand comes from central government via the National Land Transport Fund. And the way we deliver that investment is based on what the government priorities are of the day. Over the last decade or so, we have seen a, a mindful and consistent change from the balance of spend in our roading infrastructure, moving into public transport active modes and um, safety. So all of our large metro areas in New Zealand are now looking at how they can really lift their public transport game. Uh, uh, we've got Wellington undertaking uh, investigations at the moment into rapid transit responses. Auckland Light Rail, that's one component of a wider 30-year rapid transit network plan for Auckland, which is, mm. if you step back and look at our state highway system, was developed over 60 or 70 years. We now need to get to a similar place where we need to continue to build out that backbone of our public transport system through the rapid transit network. So it's a really exciting place to be in the transport planning industry at the moment because we're at the front end of a lot of that work. Would you... I think it is correct to describe transport infrastructure as enabling infrastructure for urban renewal? Without a doubt, has the ability to do that. I look back at some of the projects I've been involved in over a number of years, basically making uh, areas more accessible to people, how that can stimulate the redevelopment of land which has been vacant or you know unused for a long time and so I'm working around the Western Ring Route, which was a, a large strategic state highway corridor that was developed over decades and seeing some of the accessibility benefits that come once you're 
connect up employment areas with airports and industrial hubs and all the investment that the private sector has been able to bring afterwards. You can see the connection between the transport investment and, and what will come as a response. I think transport can be a catalyst for urban renewal. It can also follow urban renewal or it can be the generator of urban renewal. I think about a project like, say, a Newcastle light rail, which was really designed to support the urban renewal outcomes and the work that was underway mm. in revitalising a corridor in a city that you know, had real high potential for growth and just how active the corridor is that has been developed with the university there with new housing and just a really sort of vibrant place to visit. And it's great to see transport able to play a role in supporting more than just the movement of people and goods, but rather the fabric of a city. Yes, yeah, so I was in Newcastle recently. It's been so exciting to see that urban transformation happen around that investment and more to come there. Today's mega projects across New South Wales and New Zealand are really more focused on that development-oriented transport to deliver positive social outcomes. And that's through really focusing in on those associated land uses and guiding that process of urban renewal that we know will occur that is catalyzed by that transport investment. How are you navigating this whole domain differently to past approaches, which were perhaps just quite focused on those transport investments and not what's happening around it? I think we just have to because the circumstances say that we are more aware of, we have more data about, we have more information and more intersection with all the the various different drivers of land use and, and transit demand so that we do respond to that from a New South Wales perspective. We have a closer integration of land use and transport planning agencies than ever I've experienced. We also are doing different things like place-based business cases to do one business case for all the infrastructure, social and economic, that is required to support an area of growth, to really give government that full-field picture of what it will cost to achieve the outcome that's desired in a particular place. And to do that, we have to build partnerships with council and the private sector because governments can't be isolated. They can't do these things alone. Right now, we're in a period where the whole discipline of transport planning is being a bit shaken up. Historically, it's been about the Marchetti constant. It's 30 minutes each way, five days a week commute, travel, and cities growing up around that with idyllic being public transport to serve the majority of trips. But we're seeing hybrid work, people working two, three, four days, not in the office. And and so we need to think about all of the different transit needs and transport needs people have and adjust to that. And we need to do that with the social planning agencies, with the local agencies, so that we don't risk misspending the public's money on the wrong solutions for people's future demand. Doing things at the same time in terms of planning for your future has been really successful in getting the right outcomes for our communities. And we've got some examples right now in Auckland where we're designing the long-term greenfield transport networks for the future urban areas that our council is looking to provide. It's a quite a powerful way of working because it helps to show um, the real system-wide responses that you need to deliver in order to get communities to grow in the way that people want them to grow so that it's not only the type of transport response you provide but it's when you provide it the sequencing making sure people have got viable active modes and passenger transport services it's been really useful to work 
in a partnership approach to develop infrastructure responses with the land use visioning. Yeah, it's a holistic approach to planning. It takes into account environmental, social and economic drivers and outcomes. I've been excited to see this shift to more of a focus on social value in business cases. We're seeing that coming through very tangibly through our projects. That really shows me how sustainability and resilience is very much at the heart of this long-term planning in transport now. And that really leads us to thinking about integrated station development, taking into account both the transport and the urban outcomes around it can support different types of equity outcomes. And that's related to communities' access to public transport, affordable housing, housing that's well-connected to jobs. So, Paul, we do read about it a lot. In the media, there is very much a housing crisis. In New Zealand, what interventions could be employed to enable delivery of affordable housing and social housing, along with public transport infrastructure? It's actually... A really important first step that that you were even able to ask me that question. So you know, it's the visibility of this is a problem that we want to look into as a society. It's an area where, as a profession, we're needing to change and evolve. Looking back over time, we're really good at measuring things from a transport perspective around the safety performance of a system, the re- reliability. But we need to start thinking about equity. When we're assessing options, we need to be more insightful around the carbon impacts of our choices. So the way we understand our work needs to evolve because through those insights, we'll be able to make more conscious decisions in terms of the way we design and invest in our transport system. Simon, the ability to generate social and affordable housing is a very hot topic in Australia right now. So how does this translate into your sphere of influence? Yeah, I think um, this is a pretty core issue. We've got government targets around social and affordable housing, but what I think we're seeing is projects really embracing this and looking at the responsibilities and opportunities they have to contribute to more than just a transport station or a transport node. I'll probably just mention one example, and that's some build-to-rent housing being developed around one of the stations on on the new metro where right in the center of the sydney cbd so right on the doorstep of jobs and entertainment there's going to be built to rent housing on pitt street and i think projects delivering that sort of thing is the real tangible examples of where these kind of initiatives come to bear when i have worked in social value in transport planning projects One of the great examples of that I often look at in how they did things and how they delivered social and economic outcomes is the renewal of King's Cross St Pancras and that district and area around the station in London. Having lived there and just seen how that transformation occurred at that time, what was very interesting about that project is the real focus on taking into account the population characteristics the social and economic characteristics of those surrounding local communities. And even though this was very much a transport hub for the nation, thinking about both those macro outcomes as well as the local outcomes for communities and a couple of ways that was done was looking at the provision of public space and social infrastructure that would be accessible to local people. Also, the level of engagement that was undertaken with local communities in planning the project. Are there particular examples of integrated transport projects 
delivering social value that you've been inspired by? Our New Zealand Upgrade Program. So that's a bit over $8 billion package that the government has funded in a range of transport responses across New Zealand. We're testing some really innovative ways of approaching social procurement. So how are we looking at the ability to grow local workforces, our Maori Pacifica communities? How are we looking to really start tackling our carbon challenges by innovating in the way we think about constructing and operating these new projects as well? Here in Sydney, the plans for the future of the Central Station precinct and the Tech Central development and renewal around there, I think are amazing. And watching that come to life over the next 5, 10, 20 years, I think will really create those outcomes. I'm aware of the fantastic connecting with country work that was done also to inform the structure plan. And that is just so innovative. So to try and encapsulate what we've been talking about, what comes first, the transport or the land use? It has to be a, a circular process where they talk to each other. You can start with what the existing land use is and what the existing transport capacity is, and then you look at whether there's a land use driver for change or whether there's a transport driver for change and then how the other one responds to that. Like if you're putting in a new metro, but it's to an area where you don't have development plan, then you should think about what is the development that can take most advantage of that. But equally, if you have a housing target that can't, have its travel demand targets met by the current network, then transport has to respond to that. It has to be a bit of give and take, right, where you set your vision, you look at your response. And then from our perspective as public transport, developers, planners and public servants, we have to provide advice to our governments about what's affordable, what's optimal and how best we can realise the vision. If you win that argument, you've probably lost the war because you, you've, you've missed the point. It's, it's not one or the other. If you're not integrating, I don't think anyone wins. What we can also do is plan as a system as well as we can so that priorities can move, speed up or slow down. But if you've got a North Star to lead towards, most of the time you'll, you'll get a good integrated outcome. I'm so going to steal that line. Um, if you win that argument, you've lost the war. <laughs> glad, glad I could add value today. Ah. Well, what are the social license barriers to delivering more integrated transport and mobility more of the time? We talked about opportunities a lot, the public value, the public benefits. But how about the barriers when communities are not sure of what's happening? We're at a really interesting place where we've got younger generations with specific views around the way their transport system should work compared to other demographics. So we've got insights from all different age groups, backgrounds that are often not aligned. A big part of our role is helping people to understand what the opportunities are for the future. We need to make sure that we do understand the, the hesitancy our communities might have to change and do our best to, to work alongside them. Um, pushing things through never really works in my experience. So listening is always more powerful than talking. You lose social license if you do things to people and to the community. You gain social license, you build trust and you legitimise what you do if you do things with the community and you listen to the community and, and you, you plan and deliver with their best interests in mind. And sometimes that means changing things from what is an optimal technical solution 
to what is an optimal community solution. Sometimes it costs more, but the cost is worth it because of the benefit to community and, and to people. So what uh, role can designers, engineers and advisors play, do you think, in the, in the transition to a more sustainable and equitable future that you're both seeking to create through your uh, very influential roles? I've always found that if we as a client are able to articulate the, the, the challenges really, a really keen engineer and designer is always going to find a way of chasing it down for us. And the other thing is, is that it's not certainly for BAU in terms of the way we approach problems. And I've, I've talked a little bit today about some of the new ways we need to think about how we do our work and looking at the different tools, methodologies that we can create to understand those problems better and also communicate with our communities better. Don't be afraid to think outside the box and to think of different options. The reason we do ask other people for advice is because we don't have all the answers. Thank you so much to you both for sharing all of those really interesting insights and perspectives. It's an incredibly important role you play in what is a fast-changing and evolving sphere and so influential in, in our everyday lives. Oh, thank, thank you very much. Thank you both. Thanks so much to Simon, Paul and Alison for that insightful discussion. I hope this episode helps you think differently about transport infrastructure and how it has the power to influence our social, economic and environmental future. If you're enjoying our Engineering Reimagined podcast and haven't yet subscribed, it's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or anywhere you choose to listen. Don't forget to follow Oricon on your favourite social media platform to stay up to date and join the conversation. Until next time, thanks for listening.